Welcome to this special COVID pandemic episode of the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. On today's special edition titled, The COVID-19 Pandemic, When Will It End? Experts from St. Ambrose Masters of Public Health program discuss mitigation, herd immunity, and social responses to the pandemic, both regionally and globally. This episode's podcast host is Dr. John Bowser. Dr. Bowser is an alum of SAU and is a senior research associate at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. He is also an adjunct professor in the St. Ambrose MPH program. Before we get started, we want to remind everyone to please review current COVID reports from reliable sources such as the CDC, World Health Organization, and your local and public health departments. If you live in the Quad City area, you can visit TogetherQC.com for reliable local resources. This podcast was recorded through the phone to support the current recommendations. Welcome to the IPCC podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Person-Centered Care in collaboration with KALA-FM. I'm Dr. John Bowser, adjunct professor in the Masters of Public Health program at St. Ambrose University, and I'm your host for today's podcast. Our episode today is titled, The COVID-19 Pandemic, When Will It End? Joining me on our panel are my distinguished colleagues from the St. Ambrose MPH program, Dr. Melissa Scher, Program Director and Assistant Professor of Public Health. Hello, everyone. I'm Melissa, and I'm happy to be here. And Dr. Colleen Doak, Associate Professor of Public Health. Hello, everybody. I'm Colleen. Great to be with you today. Now, this is an ever-evolving and changing event, and it feels like as we continue, we are trying to hit a moving target. So I'm glad that the three of us are able to get together, remotely, of course, to talk about what is really on everybody's mind, and that is, when will it end? Now, I should point out at the front end that we won't be able to give you a firm date to circle on your calendar, but we should have a good discussion to help people as we go forward. So now, on this panel of three, we each happen to reside in different states. Melissa, you are in Illinois. Colleen is on the Iowa side of the river, and I reside up in Wisconsin. Now, across the U.S., practices have been very state-specific. So starting with you, Melissa, uh, could you provide the listeners with an overview of what has been done in your state up until now? Sure, everyone. Um, as John said, I'm living in Illinois. So things closed out early in Illinois in mid-March. In fact, I had a friend in New York City who was surprised that Illinois closed before New York. It was a matter of hours, I think. But um, Governor Pritzker in our state put a shelter into place very early in our state, and we're actually seeing the impact of that now with um, the numbers show that we've peaked, we've already peaked, and we hopefully are going uh, down a little bit now compared to the other two states. Um, Colleen, I'm happy to hand over to you if you want to give us the situation in Iowa, which is very relevant for us because even though I live in Illinois, I'm seven miles from the Iowa border. So what's happening on the Iowa side is more tied to what's happening where I live compared to what's happening in Chicago. Yeah, so here in Davenport, Iowa, we're very close to the border with Illinois. And initially it looked like 
uh, Iowa is increasing much faster. And it's really hard to tell at this point with the way the numbers are reported and the delays in the process of the numbers being reported. It's really important to know that public health tra- public transit systems on both sides of the river are still running. Uh, so you see the buses going. Uh, more people are wearing face masks now. That's really been a noticeable difference in the past few few weeks but it looks like because of this porous border we're going across back and forth between illinois and iowa that the numbers on the rock island side of the quad cities and the davenport side of the quad cities are really not hugely different at this moment in spite of the fact that you have really different statewide approaches to uh, strategies for physical distancing so i'm just going to pass this back now to john to see what he has to say about what's happening in wisconsin All right. Well, up in Wisconsin, uh, we had a shelter-in-place order that went in as of Wednesday, March 25th, and currently it's to last until at least April 24th. Um, Before that, all schools in the state closed as of the end of the day on March 13th. That was a Friday. Um, And as far as going forward, we haven't heard anything as far as if there's going to be an extension of the shelter-in-place order, um, also about the status of the schools for the rest of the year. Now, we've had a steady increase in cases. Um, As of today, it's April 14th. uh, We have just above 3,500 cases and 170 deaths. Now, in the past couple days, it appears to have started to flatten. Um, However, uh, last Tuesday on April 7th, Wisconsin made the decision to continue to hold its spring election. Um, The governor attempted an executive order at the last minute for a postponement, uh, but that was challenged, and, and the election went on. Um, as as planned. So with the delay from exposure to um, to uh, showing of symptoms, we might see, well, we'll see, SF, see what happens in the next couple of weeks. So two steps forward and, and possibly one step back, that sort of remains to be seen in Wisconsin. So moving on, now, while we would all love to wake up one morning, one magical morning, and be able to say that it's all over, The truth is things will be much more gradual than that. So with that in mind, and I'll start with you, Colleen, what are some some of the possibilities of action uh, that will bring us back to some sense of normalcy? Thank you, John. I really think that until we have a vaccine or a treatment that works, we're really not going to have complete normalcy. We may have a single peak and then multiple little waves, But to really completely get rid of this epidemic, to be completely over it, I think we need uh, really a vaccine that's available on a wide scale globally. Um, Melissa, what do you think? Uh, Thanks, Colleen. I agree with you. I think the step before that probably will be getting access to tests whenever and wherever we need it. There's been some promising reports on looking at self-testing, rapid self-testing options. I would probably think that we will see that before we see a vaccine. So I can go to my local CVS, get a self-test, test myself, I'm letting know within five minutes if I'm positive, and then if I need to self-isolate and treat, and then also trace who I come into contact with. Those are the three things I think is going to happen next as we loosen up on sheltering in place and social distancing. That will happen when we get access to testing. We can treat those who need it, and we can trace those who test positive who are connected to that person. John, what are your thoughts here? Well, I probably have um, the less, the most unclear answer, and, and that's really the unknown. So now the virus, from what we know, it started with the first documented case on November 17th in China, 
the first confirmed case here in the U.S. Uh, wasn't documented until January 20th. So while it feels like we've been in this forever, it's only been about three months here in the United States. So the truth is we don't truly know all there is to know um, about, about the behavior of the virus. Now, unknown can be good and bad, uh, but as the behavior of the virus is better understood, we may learn things uh, that can aid in prevention and reducing transmission you know, ahead of the development and the widespread availability um, of a vaccine. So, I mean, clearly there are a lot of possible avenues uh, that will contribute towards society being able to move on uh, to some degree. Now, a fundamental element of what's being done and showing success is social distancing. It's, it's really the one thing that all people can participate in and have a positive effect. So starting with you, Melissa, what do you see as some of the challenges in maintaining this population level behavior and what can be done to help keep people in compliance with it? Um, I think the biggest fear um, on my side is being lax and letting up too soon on sheltering in place and social distancing. Um, and maybe we lighten up shelter in place and push towards social distancing, but then people still don't practice it. As Colleen said earlier, only recently, even though Illinois has been shelter in place for close to a month, um, only recently are people, um, are there lanes in the grocery stores, are there good systems for pickups where you don't have to leave your car or you get groceries delivered to you. So even though we've been ahead of the curve, we've only started to see these types of prevention things in place in the last week or so. Um, so, and I also think what I said before, as soon as we have access to tests, that will help reduce any fear as well, because we know we'll know what we're dealing with when we get tested. And as we all know, a lot of times we're asymptomatic for a long time after we're positive or we have mild symptoms. So it'll let me know that I'm positive for COVID and I'll watch myself and be able to get the treatment that I need when I need it if I get into a severe case. Um, Colleen, what are your thoughts in terms of um, challenges and the next steps? Uh, some of the big issues that I see are simply a lack of supplies. Uh, if people don't have the masks, um, there's really not much point in asking people to wear masks to the grocery store if there are no masks to be found. Uh, now some people are sewing their own masks, but we also know that the virus actually is small enough to get through those fibers. So there's a limit to uh, what we can do with the materials we have at hand. The other thing is jobs. Uh, people will need to get back to work. It's just an economic necessity. They can't afford to buy food if they're out of work for so long. They have to pay their mortgages. They have to pay their electric bills, their water uh, so unless we have laws that protect people from being evicted and also a process for delivering food to people so they have their basic needs met, we really can't ask for people to continue social distancing for the long term. Many jobs require being physically near other people. John, what do you think? Uh, well, those are all very good points that, that you both brought up. I mean, for me, the challenges that I think of are a combination of the warmer weather even though I look outside my window on April 14th and it's snowing, but the warmer weather that'll come eventually and, and just fatigue. I mean, eventually, you know, more and more people, I think they'll be thinking less with their head and more with their heart. Now, in some instances, that isn't a bad thing, but here it is. And I, I worry that we as a population will start to lose our objectivity um, about the importance of what's being done to address the pandemic. So, 
the challenge I feel is to keep kind of the messaging fresh in people's mind and relevant to what will likely be a changing you know, psychological dynamic on a population level. But regardless of where we go from here, I mean, social distancing, you know, in places where compliance has been high, I mean, it, it has appeared to serve its purpose, you know, relatively well. Now, aside from residing in three different states, now each of us has a different specialty within the field of public health. Now, my background leans into the social and behavioral side of population and public health. Uh, Melissa, you have an extensive background in global health. Um, and in, in humanitarian settings, including the Ebola response in West Africa. And Colleen, a lot of your work is as an epidemiologist with a focus on nutrition and food security. So going forward with our different perspectives and backgrounds, let's start with what makes you pessimistic uh, going forward as we deal with COVID-19 pandemic. And Colleen, um, I'll ask you to start us off. Okay, well, a lot of my work has been in South Africa, and I'm, so I'm going to draw on that example of food security and HIV. We know that HIV had enormous impact on food insecurity in South Africa, both at the national level, household levels, and individual levels. And when people are unable to go out or become ill, they're unable to continue to produce food. Now, here in Illinois and Iowa, uh, farming and producing food is really central. And also, you know, if you think of this in terms of just specifically the COVID epidemic, people are at home unable to generate income. Many people are unable to get food delivered. Um, they can't afford food deliveries. So the impact that it's having right here locally on our food pantries and the demand for food is really astronomical. So that is something that concerns me even when the COVID-19 pandemic ends how will we continue with um, recovering our economy and getting people access to their basic needs? So I'm curious, Melissa, what your take is on this. Um, I think if I think of the United States, it's very similar to what's been said already in terms of once we relax um, sheltering in place, social distancing, the um, corona, COVID spiking up again, and then you're having to put it back in place. And I feel like over the next 12 months, we'll probably relax, spike up, put it back into place, relax, spike up. But then when I think about my other experience um, with Ebola uh, in West Africa, I, I really am concerned when it does hit countries with weaker health systems in the United States. Um, what What is happening when it hits the, the Congo and Yemen just had its first cases. Now, the optimists in me in Yemen, it actually, which is in an active conflict, they started a ceasefire because of COVID. So that's good. The ceasefire is good because of COVID. But now they have some of their first cases. So how are their health systems going to respond? So that's kind of the global thinking where I'm at now. We're trying to get on top of it now in the U.S., but globally, it's going to get worse. And how are we going to deal with that as a nation, or not as a nation, as, a, as humanity and a globe, considering? how porous the borders are globally between countries in terms of COVID. Um, John, what, what are your thoughts here? So, I mean, my concern, and I guess, you know, what makes me a little pessimistic is that, I mean, once restrictions start to be relaxed, I, I feel like there's no real return, you know, to the stay-at-home compliance that we have now. So I, I live, my closest media market is, is Madison, and it's a city of about 250,000 people, which is not huge, but you know, it's a good size. And the number of citations for violations has been in the teens. So, I mean, just that, you know, anecdotally says the compliance has been pretty good. 
But I feel like once things start to get relaxed, the toothpaste will be out of the tube, so to speak. And, and this is our one real shot to have this, you know, level of compliance and, and stay at home and social distancing. So, you know, I can't imagine that, you know, if we get to the later months of summer, to July or August, and, and we see a big spike and we ask or are told to return to what we're doing now, I just don't see it having near the level of compliance um, as we're having now. So, but enough of the negativity, there's too much of that in the world right now. So on the flip side, what makes you optimistic? And I'm going to start with the resident optimist, Melissa. Thank you. I will wear that with pride. Um, so optimism is a natural piece of who I am, and it also really much aligns with my take on public health. Um, this is going to lead to great opportunities for us in terms of managing our own health care better, more elements of person-centered care in our own health system. I also see things every day, the needs that we're bombarded with. Like yesterday, I talked about how governors from a number of different states came together to work together. That was an incredibly optimistic spin in terms of how all these different governors from many different states came together to reduce competition on supplies. The other things that I'm seeing that are really positive, a lot of my work has been in HIV, and um, in terms of different treatment trials, what would happen when they would see the treatment working for thousands of people, for instance, preventing um, a HIV-positive woman transferring um, HIV to her unborn child, as soon as it was shown to be efficacious working, uh, they scrapped the trial and put it all out in the, in the country. So then they offer the treatment out. So basically the vaccine trial has started earlier than most. There's a treatment trial trial for different um, treatment um, options that is happening now too. Um, so as soon as we start to see some efficacy, these things will bring us solutions hopefully earlier than we expect. So those are some things that I see that are happening and are making me happy and think positively about this. Colleen, what, what are your thoughts in terms of optimistic thoughts uh, and, and next steps? Well, as you know, I am not the optimist. The other way around, I tend to be the pessimist in the group. Uh, so I have been pleasantly surprised by how many people are really doing it. The physical distancing is something that people started taking seriously here in the Quad Cities even before it was something that uh, was mandated. So before the governors came out and said, you, you really need to stay home, people were being cautious, you know, the elbow bump and all of that. Uh, so I think we really, and we see the masks, people, the moment they said, wear masks, I saw people already in the Quad Cities waiting for the buses, whatever they had to do, but they were wearing their masks. And then if you look at the numbers, the states that really emphasized physical distancing and also implemented stay-at-home orders, you see the, the curve is less. They really see that flattening of the curve or at least a less strong escalation of the curve than, than we were expecting from, for example, Italy and New York. So I'm curious, John, what makes you optimistic? Well, and, and this is a surprising answer even for myself, and that would be Ohio, as in the state of Ohio. I have no connection to it whatsoever. I drove through it once to go to Buffalo, but that's about it. However, Ann Garden, who is the director of the IPCC and a native Ohioan, um, has been informing me about all the great things being done in Ohio. So now you can, you can look it up for yourself, all that's been going on. But in short, the leadership structure, it, it's really working. Uh, Governor Mike DeWine has been front and center. Um, all politics aside, he has been you know, direct and, and decisive. 
And a frequent message of his is to trust the public health experts. Um, and in Ohio, the main public health voice and expert is Dr. Amy Acton, who is the director of the Ohio Department of Public Health, or Department of Health, rather, um, and is a bona fide rock star. Now, I say that not just as a public health nerd, which is true, but also her, she has an online Facebook fan club that has 131,000 members. Now, you compare that to my online fan club, which has uh, zero members, not a one. So 131,000 people love her. And it's proof that, you know, what's, when it's done correctly, public health communication can be extremely effective. And in terms of, you know, numbers, you know, when you compare Ohio's rates to the neighboring states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Indiana, you know, we're seeing a real-time example of, you know, what can be done at the state level which could then provide a basis for how we address future epidemics and pandemics. So yay, Ohio. Good, good for you. So on to a final question. Now, a saying that's been floated around in public health circles through this is the idea of you know, never waste a crisis. And, you know, that can mean many things can bad. But here it means that as we're going through this, there are opportunities, opportunities to learn and improve. So my question to you, and I'll start with you, Colleen, is what do you hope that we can gain in you know, knowledge and skills through the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, I think what we're seeing already is an enormous amount of local planning and action, um, local, community level, very small level, but also state level, national level, and globally. The other thing we're seeing is the process from research to publication and into practice is infinitely slow, usually. But what we're seeing now is research is going very quickly into publication, and publications are very quickly being translated into practice policy implementation. And I think that's a phenomenal thing that we're learning from every single day during this pandemic. Um, so that is my uniquely optimistic point of view. Um, I'm usually the pessimist, but I think what we're seeing here is, is pretty dramatic in terms of uh, policy to action. Melissa, what do you think? So, Colleen, I love it when you come over to the bright side. Um, I agree with everything you said. I think our nation has been extremely divided for an extremely long time, and I think this is the way we've all come together as citizens in this wonderful country of ours. Um, I also think with the publication or the research, for instance, today it just came across my plate that they are doing microneedling in mice the vaccine for COVID and, you know, putting it in and then it's only been put in for a couple of days, but they're already showing results that it is um, killing um, COVID in the mice. So the point that we know that within the week of the research being done is really powerful in terms of sharing the data real time and being transparent. And I think what John said about Ohio and definitely Illinois as well, that transparency is key because um, it brings us closer together. John, what are, what are your thoughts here? So my thoughts as far as what we can learn is a better understanding of what health is. So, you know, public health 101 is that you know, we teach that health is not simply the absence of disease. It's, it's much broader than that. And, you know, what I'm seeing is that as we all, you know, wrestle with this in our own way, you know, we can't help but take stock of our, you know, physical, social, or, or spiritual health. And so, while the societal change that we, you know, 
want to see might not be as, you know, massive or dramatic as, as some are thinking, I think there will be a change. And, you know, one area of that will be in how we go about addressing and being aware of our own health. And, and that is certainly a, a positive thing. So uh, with that, Melissa and Colleen, I'm glad we were able to connect and talk over where we are and, and where we are going. So I will leave you a um, chance to have any final thoughts. Melissa? Thanks, John. Um, my final thought is I just very much value talking to other people thinking about this because it helps me understand COVID and what I'm doing personally and then also what we can do better as a community. So thank you, Colleen and John, for taking part of this discussion. Colleen, what are your final thoughts? Yes, um, I just think we need to think ahead about where we're going after, you know, the pandemic is over and think about, you know, the process of recovery, um, how we're going to move into recovery from the economic conditions, but also the mental health uh, situation that we're experiencing right now. I mean, this is a trauma, and this is something that many people are experiencing in a deep way that we will need to recover from separately from the consequences of the, the pandemic itself. John, what do you think? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, my final thoughts are that this has been, you know, a once in a lifetime experience. Um, and so, you know, I, kind of what I said earlier that I truly hope that as we come out on the other end, there are the lessons that we learn and that we as a society and, and as public health professionals are simply better at, you know, how we go about and, you know, understanding the needs of the public and how we go forward and, and address them. So, with that, um, I guess I'll say to you, the audience, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Um, I know that Dr. Cher, Dr. Delk, and myself all appreciate the opportunity to share our perspectives and expertise as faculty members of the St. Ambrose Masters of Public Health Program and appreciate your attention. Um, I am Dr. John Bowser, Adjunct Professor of Public Health at St. Ambrose University. Thank you for joining us and be well. Thanks for listening to this special COVID pandemic episode of the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, brought to you by St. Ambrose University's Institute for Person-Centered Care and KALA-FM. You can learn more about the Institute for Person-Centered Care by connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter.